podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. Discover why more than 70 million Americans trust Allianz Travel Insurance to protect their travels. Get a quote for your next trip at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Last week's show was a lot of chatter between me and the marvelous Jason Cochran. We had so much fun that I'm bringing him back for the beginning of today's show. Last week, we talked about the two cruises we were on, but I was lucky enough to follow my cruise vacation with some time in tremendous cities. Uh, So I I asked Jason back uh, to chat with me about those. Here he is. Hey, Jason. Nice to speak with you again. Hello. Good to be back. Yeah. So as you know, you know, I I have trouble going somewhere and then coming back. (laughs) I always feel like there's so much more I want to see and do. And I ended up flitting around Europe because, you know, the, the airfares to Europe are fairly high right now. Although I did go back on Norse Airways, which was pretty cheap. We can talk about that in a moment. But I thought, why not just spend a little bit more time, maybe come up with some more articles to to write. And so I looked at where I was going to end in Europe and realized I was a short train ride away from a city I'd always wanted to go to, Marseille. Have you been to Marseille? I I have, but it was so quick that it was like in passing on the way to somewhere else, which I think is the way a lot of people do it. So I'd be interested to hear your impressions that now that you got to sort of get off the train for a little while and explore. Yeah. Well, I was there for three days. Marseille is surprisingly one of the biggest cruise ship ports in the world. So I think a lot of people get kind of a, a very brief impression of it. But I would say Marseille is the punk rock version of France. It is one of the, it's the oldest continually inhabited city in all of France, but it's also known as the rebel city because this is a city with people from all over the world. In fact, a quarter of the population is Algerian and from other parts of North Africa. This is a city where you have the same type of glorious buildings you'd see in Paris, but in Marseille, they're covered with graffiti, had street art. And, um, you know, I I was walking around, I did a, there's this company called Culinary Backstreets. They do in-depth walking tours where you eat and eat and eat for five or six hours. And I've had good luck with that in other cities. My Marseille trip tour was okay. I I learned a lot, uh, but it wasn't quite as insightful or as interestingly as others that I've taken. But what was so surprising about it is we hardly ate any French food. It Because Marseille is such a city of immigrants, our, our first stop was at an Armenian deli. And then we went to a, a, a Tangier couscous place. And then we went to a, a place that, that sold Spanish cheeses. So it, it's a, a much more international city than I realized it was going to be. And really, really vibrant for an unusual reason. Marseille used to be a place that people avoided. It was mostly known for its crime. And then in 2013, 
UNESCO named it the World City of Culture. And because UNESCO gives those designations several years in advance, and what that designation means basically is the city is going to have a huge festival for a year. And during that festival, dance troops and musicians and artists from all over the world are going to descend and make it for that one year a center of world culture. And so in preparation for this event in 2013, the French government poured millions upon millions of euros into revitalizing Marseille. And because of that, it's a safe city now. And it's a city where the, the, it has new museums all created for 2013 that are world-class. One is called the Museum of the Mediterranean which I, I spent half a day at, which has the really interesting point of view that Mediterranean countries have more in common than they have that's different, that France has a lot in common with, say, Tangiers or Israel or Italy or the other countries on the Mediterranean. And it looks at these commonalities and it looks at the way the trading over the centuries shaped this entire basin. So a really, really fascinating place that wouldn't be half as good, you know, if it hadn't been for this huge influx of, of money from the government, well, which was it has, uh, kind of interesting. In the past had a checkered reputation, especially among the French. And uh, and I've heard many French people say, why would you want to go down to Marseille? It's on the southern coast, for those who don't know. But, you know, as someone who lived in New York City for so long and you live there now, you know that sometimes the reputation of a city doesn't match the experience. Right, right. And it, it, it was a very wealthy city. I mean, it was the center of trade. And so when you go to the train station, there's this magnificent bank of marble steps that leads up a hill to the train station. And flanking the steps are statues to the great trading colonies of France. Um, statues that are controversial nowadays because they show, you know, a, a, a reclining African woman who is portrayed as being kind of the chattel of France. So, you yeah, know. Yeah, it, you see that kind of stuff even in New York, I think, you know, uh, sure. you've seen some of those statues. That was a very common symbology back then. It's always a little disquieting to look at. Right. But as I was saying, on the tour, the reason I brought up the tour was uh, I I was trying to figure out how to cross the street because I couldn't really figure out the rules. And I said to my guide, what is the rule? If I cross on the tiger crossing, or not the tiger, the zebra crossing, will will people stop? And she said, oh, you never know. There are no rules here. (laughs) So so I was right because it really did feel like a city. There There were constantly people driving the wrong way bicycles coming at you from every angle. I mean, it, it really was kind of a wild place, but it had this extraordinary energy to it. And I went to this triangle uh, that is being filled with artists and with galleries and with people making their own clothing. And, and but, but because it's been there for so long and because it was so wealthy, you also have extraordinary cathedrals and monuments and these fabulous restaurants. It was couscous week when I was there. That every, sounds okay every, to me. I like that. Oh yeah, every every uh, restaurant, even the non North African, were doing their takes of couscous. 
which was a lot of fun. Now, you've been to uh, other Mediterranean cities in France, haven't you? Like Nice or Cannes or Saint-Tropez or Toulon? Yes, How would absolutely. you compare it? And w- or would you suggest that someone see Marseille as sort of a run along the coast? How do, you, how do you add that into a vacation or do you make it the focus of a vacation? I think you could make it the focus of a vacation uh, and use it as a hopping off point to get to places like Avignon mm-hmm. and Aix-en-Provence and Nice. I mean, they're all within easy driving oh, yeah, distance. Yeah, Aix-en-Provence is practically outside the northern gates. You know, it's right there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, Nice and Cannes, they're, they're much more staid. Marseille is just a place of chaos, kind of beautiful chaos. It really feels far more alive and far less of a beach resort. It it has, even though it does have, there are beaches and there are these famous cliffs in a national park that is actually within the confines of the city. Uh, that so beautiful nature areas there, uh, but this felt far less resorty than those cities. Well, it sounds a little this, like the Nice area, which is near Monaco, would be more high class and. Marseille yeah. is a bit more hoi polloi. It's it's you see every class. It sounds like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although you can, you know, I mean, if you want to have the famous dish there, which is bouillabaisse, which I didn't end up having, it's going to cost you like eighty euros for a plate of the stuff, what? which is the reason I didn't have it. <laughs> so there, there is, there are high end treats that you can find in Marseille. But, but it's much more rough and tumble. And to see a French city with that kind of edge to it, I, I found it exciting. And then I decided to go, I wanted to figure out where I could get a direct flight to from Marseille. And so I decided to go to Vienna, which I fell in love with. This is uh, on, with me, by the way. Pauline Fromer had never been to Vienna before. I had never been to Vienna. I know. Can you believe it? Uh, I, no, I, I at least I don't think so. You know, I started traveling with my guidebook writing parents when I was four months old. So there are certain places I go to that I think right. it's the first time, and I have this incredible deja vu, and I don't quite know if I've been there before. Well, I do guarantee I, I that the city would have changed substantially since then anyway. Yeah. Vienna, my God, what a city of riches. I, I just, in researching it before my trip, my head was spinning the, the museums there have every painting and sculpture you ever studied in art history. And there are these palaces and extraordinary restaurants and a hugely civilized way of life. Yeah. I, I was uh, in the museum quarter and I just ha- happened upon a street corner where somebody had set out all of these beanbag chairs and put up kiosks of books, and it was an open library. And parents were were reclining on these beanbags with their children, reading picture books aloud. Other people had just grabbed books to read. I happened to stumble into a an outdoor book reading uh, one evening, and literally three thousand people showed up to hear a reader uh, or a, a writer read their work. And I had to sit there for 20 minutes just because as a book lover, even though I couldn't understand a word that was said, it was so transporting to to just hear, to watch these people listen to a book being read with such pleasure. It it just was really magical. And, And 
they have outdoor in the summer, they have these outdoor film series where they don't show Ghostbusters for the 4,000th time. They show great concerts. And so I went to this incredible square called the Rathausplatz, which had this Gothic building. And in front of the Gothic building was this towering screen. And they showed this extraordinary concert from a decade ago in Paris. And it it was just a magical evening and sitting outside. It's a great place. And in the wintertime or before the holidays, there's one of the best uh, Christmas markets in front of the Rothhausen. Mm. It's a great community center in yeah. Vienna. It, always head there to see if there's anything going on. Yeah. Now, I knew I was going to Vienna to go on a Klimt pilgrimage because he is one of my top five favorite artists. And uh, so I knew that that was going to be thrilling and seeing Klimt's work in person, you know, it's like seeing a Rothko in person. The the colors are more vibrant and you can see the interplay between the figures more, more specifically. And it's just a, uh, I'm going to sound like such a a geek, but to me, it's a rapturous experience. What I hadn't realized was some of his contemporaries' work is as moving. I didn't know Egan Shields' work well. Oh, I love it. Do you it. know he Egan? Like, I, I He's one of my, I think, put, I put him above Klimt. Of all my, those at oh. eras uh, artists, because Schiele has a, I don't know, a transgressive nature to him that I just love. Yeah, no, I, I found his work so moving and so extraordinary. There's this painting uh, of him naked with a woman who actually they say is not his wife and cradled in, in, in the crook of the woman's leg is maybe a, a two-year-old toddler. And this was painted the last year of his life. Um, he died, I believe, at the age of 28. His pregnant wife died first. Uh, she was six months pregnant. She died of the Spanish flu. And, and so then he went. died... He, what? Klimt also died in, in 1918. Oh, of the Spanish flu. So he right. died of, of the flu and he had he had painted this painting, I think three months before he died, and it was titled Family. Probably he knew his wife was pregnant at that point, but he never had a family. And so um, hearing about the story and um, this great artist who died so young, um, but yes, transgressive, and you you feel like his his paintings are looking back out at you. Yeah, uh, yeah. just the, the, I think really today's work is so much more modern. Even I mean, Klimt says this gorgeous Tiffany like era uh, exactitude and, uh, and 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 lusciousness about it. But but Chile is you, you could put that in front of a person now, and they think it's someone now because it's it yeah feels current, very also. contemporary. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Uh, the only f- stuff that I didn't love in uh, Vienna was the imperial stuff. I-, I kind of was a little bored by the by the palaces. Um, Might have been the quality of the audio guide. I don't know. It was a, it was interesting. It was okay. And what what really killed me? What was so goddamn boring uh, was the Spanish riding school. I, I went to see the Lippenzahner Stallions show, and oh my goodness, I wish I could get that hour and a half back. That was just the dullest thing. Luckily, I, I bought a standing room ticket, so I didn't pay too much. Uh, but you have to get these tickets months in advance. And the very first act, they had the apprentice horses, the younger horses, just kind of walking around in circles. And I thought, oh, wow, isn't it? 
funny that they're doing this so that they can show how far these horses are going to get later in the show. And then they didn't. (laughs) They mostly just walked around in circles. I mean, they're beautiful animals, but for an hour and a half, Oh my goodness! Sometimes have you seen it? Really, seeing is adore the the tradition of it, and they're much more versed on what's happening and what means what, you know, yeah. what's happening longer. And like, I feel the same way whenever I watch these uh, rituals in the UK, like trooping the color. I'm huh. just fantastically bored, but the royalists are just enthralled and raptured because they know everything that's happening, and I think that's the key between enjoying it and not enjoying it. I guess so. Maybe if I had known what it takes to get a horse to walk diagonally. Right. Because they did a lot of diagonal walking, and that seemed to be a big deal. But, oh, my goodness. Well, it's true. Um, I've never made a horse walk diagonally. So on that level, I could appreciate it for a minute. (laughs) No, I think Vienna is such a gorgeous city just for walking around. The cafe culture, you don't have to – and even the museums now have major cafes attached to them. The arts – uh, you can really just build a whole day around the arts and just hanging out in the places where arts happen or are sold or are made. Yeah. And I went to the Freud Museum, which was really pretty fascinating, actually. They were the learning about psych. I mean, I, I studied a lot of Freud in, in college, but bringing, but I, they, they were, they had videos with people who are psychoanalysts today or are teaching psychoanalysis. And they're, point of view I thought was really fascinating. They believe that because humans are social creatures, the only way you can address any mental issues you may be having is in communion with another human being. That it, it has to, psychoanalysis analysis works, they feel, and they're Freudians, uh, because of interactions, because it replicates uh, what we do in our larger lives. And if we can repi- replicate that in a therapeutic way, that's the only way to make your life better if you're having issues. They don't believe pills are going to do it. They don't believe other forms of analysis are going to do it. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never been I've never been to Freudian analysis, but it was fascinating to hear about why they think it 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 works and and how it reflects on the larger society. You know, I think Vienna is underrated as well. Um, my favorite travel movie or movie about travel is actually set entirely in Vienna and it's called Before Sunrise. It's, a, uh, it's 1985 and it's mm-hmm. young Ethan Hawke and young Ethan Julie Delpy. Well, they're both still kind of young, but um, they meet as backpackers, you know, randomly on a train and the movie is just following them around while they all through the beautiful cobbled streets of Vienna, listening to music through windows, sitting by the river as they talk about their lives. And it really encaptures that that excitement and romance and instant connection that you sometimes feel with someone when you travel, when you know you have to pack the relationship in a very short amount of time because yeah. you're just both two ships in the night. And it really captures right. that, that feeling of travel when you're connecting with somebody else. Interesting that he chose Vienna to film that movie in because it's about, you know, Freud was there and he's about the human connection as healing. So maybe that was intentional. Yeah. And I actually had a moment of great connection. I went to the open market, which is a wonderful covered market, uh, very much in the modernist design. And I happened to notice this tiny little shop. It was a deli with lots of hanging sausages and a big machine where a guy was thinly slicing meats. And inside the the shop were probably six men 
from 40 to 60 years old, all drinking wine, all talking with one another. It was about 1130 in the morning, but this place was a party. And I walked through the entire market looking for a place to have lunch. And I thought, I want to go back there. So I, I went into the place. I was the only woman in there. I had seen somebody get up eating from a sample plate of different meats and cheeses. And I thought, I'll make lunch of that. And I asked them to make that for me. And they, they, uh, the guys started talking to me. You know, everybody speaks English in Vienna. And so they started talking to me. And then when they heard I was from New York, they all loved New York. They insisted I get a glass of wine. We toasted New York. I heard about their adventures. And it felt like I was in the Viennese version of Cheers. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly, everybody in Vienna knew my name. And I was having this really social lunch as a solo traveler. Uh, and it, it just was one of the highlights of the trip. Food, I know, is one of the ways that you connect to places. Uh, what kind of food did you end up having in Vienna? I'm not a big fan of Viennese food. I had, you know, I had Wiener Schnitzel at a very famous place, plate, place to have Wiener Schnitzel. It was as big as the entire plate it was served on. Um, and it was fine. It was Wiener Schnitzel. Uh, and I had Tuffel Spitz, which is boiled beef. Uh, that is served with applesauce and a creamy horseradish sauce and fried potatoes and creamed spinach. I had that for lunch on my last day, and I was so reeling from it, from the heaviness of it, <laughs> that I, I didn't have dinner. Traditional food there can be very heavy. Again, it's like people who used to work outside would benefit from it, but if you don't burn a lot of calories, it's rougher on your system. Yeah. So I thought actually halfway through my time in Vienna, I thought I'm going to have non-Viennese food. And so I went out for Japanese food and it probably was the worst Japanese food I've ever had at very high prices. So um, the only thing I didn't love about Vienna, well, actually the deli I went to in the open market, my, my plate of charcuterie was fabulous. Uh, but other than that, mm, it's, it's not an eating destination to my mind. It's not famous for its food. It's like Switzerland. You might find some good stuff here and there. And I noticed there, there'll be some Austrian people listening and be very upset. Oh, yeah. But um, but I, there's a lot to be said for familiarity. And if you are, grew up with with Viennese food, I'm sure it it is this hearth and home to you. But it takes some getting used to if you're not eating it most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm dying to go back. There were so many things I didn't get to see, even though I ran around to as, as many, you know, museums and sites as I, I could. It's just such a place of, of riches, really just an extraordinary, and easy extraordinary to get around place. too, by the way. Yeah, well, you know what I did to save money? I stayed at a hotel that was four miles outside the center of the city. It was in the city, but it was way out. And it took me literally 15 minutes on the great public transportation they have to get anywhere I wanted to go. I mean, the, it was an easy, easy city to get around. Yeah. And charming in that European way with the trams and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should say uh, thank you. I'm going to say thank you, Jason, uh, for chatting with me about this. And we're going to move on to our next best guest. Okay. The following message comes from Fromer's sponsor, Allianz Travel Insurance. Vacation is the best time of the year. Don't let it get ruined when unexpected problems arise. Allianz Travel Insurance can safeguard your trip investment, reimburse covered emergency medical care, 
cover eligible costs during a travel delay, and more. Get the insurance trusted by over 70 million American travelers. Find your plan at AllianceTravelInsurance.com. And our next guest is here to talk about a subject I know a lot of our listeners love. It's wine. But not just any wine, the wines of Australia. My next two guests, Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross, have written what looks to be the definitive book. I mean, it feels like the definitive book. I have it in my hands right now. It must weigh around three pounds. It's called How to Drink Australian, an Essential Modern Wine Book. Hey, Jane and Jonathan, thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So I think a lot of Americans, when they hear Australian wine, they think yellowtail <laughs> because that mass market brand has, has kind of saturated the American market. But there's a lot more to Australian wines than just that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's Yellowtail and a handful of brands have, you're absolutely right, sort of dominated the U.S. market. And so unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think Australian wine is. And we're just trying to spread the word that there is really so much more. Well, it's a very young wine, right? I mean, uh, you go to Europe and you're often in vineyards that have been vineyards since the ancient Greek times. When did the wine industry as such start in Australia? Absolutely. So, you know, as Europeans moved around the world, they brought their systems of agriculture to the new places they colonized. So when they arrived in the U.S., for example, efforts to plant vineyards were thwarted by native pests here in the U.S. And... The U.S. resorted to making beer and distilling spirits and ciders and so on. But in many other parts of the world, that native pest didn't exist. So when a city or settlement was set up in the, what is now Sydney or Tasmania's Hobart, there were vineyards at the town center and were a very uh, central part of early European culture abroad. So wine is as old as European culture in pretty much every other European colony, except huh. for the U.S. Interesting. I didn't realize that. And beyond the lack of pests, you seem to be making the point in, in certain parts of the book that the topography and the geology of Australia was particularly well-suited to grape cultivation. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, Australia is, as we know, it's an island continent, but that creates some really wonderful Mediterranean climates, which is a classification for climates around the world. And the grapevine thrives in these climates where generally lower precipitation overall, and most of that precipitation is happening in the winter with mild winters and more mild summers. I think we are, we think through the style of wine that Yellowtail you know, made popular that Australia right. is this burning hot place and it can only ever make really overripe and jammy wines. But that is not indicative of the climate. That was always a choice uh, that was made to appeal to certain market flavor preferences. Australia is about the size of the continental US 
huh. as uh, thriving 200-year-old wine regions flung across every inch of it along the kind of southern half of the country. And it really, we found it to be extremely diverse, a wine-producing country, much more than the U.S. and many other countries around the world. When we spent about three years living in Australia, uh, we were just truly gobsmacked by how little of a real authentic wine story and scholarship existed for a country that is, thanks to something like Yellowtail, the third largest exporter of wine to the U.S. Wow. And and when you talk about a Mediterranean climate, that, that might surprise some of our listeners because often when you when you picture Australia, you picture Uluru and you picture the red center with all the red dirt. So there's no wine being grown in the red center of the country, but just in the bottom region. So if people want to plan a really great wine vacation, one that would take them to friendly places where they can learn about the wine culture there and maybe bring home bottles that, that wouldn't be imported to the United States, that, that stay down under, where would you send them? Uh, there are definitely a lot of great options. You know, we, we lived in Melbourne for three years when we were in Australia. And so we always, we always think of Melbourne and Victoria. Um, Love Melbourne. Yes. And you can go to Melbourne, you can be in the city, you can enjoy all that the city offers. And you're within an hour or max two hour drive of, you know, a handful, you know, probably eight great wine regions. So that's, that's a great trip. And you can visit the Yer Valley and Gippsland and Mornington Peninsula and Macedon Ranges and Geelong. And there are all these great wine regions right at your fingertips if you go to Melbourne. We're also big fans of Tasmania. We absolutely love mm -hmm. Tasmania. It's um, gorgeous. It's pristine. It's the site of the cleanest air on the planet. <laughs> um, and, and does that affect the grapes? Um, I think it affects to, everything. Yeah, you have to think it does. And it's, it's a cool climate. So you have a lot of sparkling wines made down there. A lot of great Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Riesling. Hobart's amazing city, Launceston too. And it's a pretty small island, so you can get around it in a few hours, kind of probably three hours from the top to the bottom as far as wine regions go. And, you know, it's just combines spectacular food and wine with spectacular beauty. Well, let me ask you, it used to be you could go to California wine country, simply get in your car and drive up to wineries and demand tastings and get them. But now I'm finding in California that advanced reservations are required. And I just was in France and you can't get into many wineries without advanced reservations. How much planning has to be done to do a pleasant wine vacation in Australia? Um, depending on who you want to see, not too much planning. And especially those regions that are within an hour's drive of a city center in Melbourne, and, and also in Adelaide, the city of Adelaide and in Hobart, depending on the winery, you might have a cellar door that's open. Um, you know, there's a, there's restrictions in California that prevent wineries or anywhere that produces alcohol to have a full service restaurant. They have to be separate liquor licenses huh. in the U.S. or at least in California. And that doesn't exist in Australia. So some of the absolute best dining experiences in Australia happen at the absolute best wineries in Australia. So wine tourism in Australia is really exciting. And it is, you know, I think sometimes people will ask for a tasting fee because you are tasting through a number of wines. And 
Sure. Oftentimes that's, you know, that goes towards your first purchase of a bottle. Tourism, wine tourism in Australia is quite easy. And some of those regions Jane mentioned, like the Mornington Peninsula, the Yarra Valley, pre-COVID, they were seeing about 60 million visitors a year. Uh, wow. I think Mornington Peninsula saw, it was, was it six, oh, so I'm sorry, 60 million dollars in revenue yeah 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 sorry <laughs> yeah. i was thinking 60 million visitors <laughs> that's incredible the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but john's john's right like there is you know there's just a, a hospitality sort of baked into the culture of australia and you know that manifests itself in wine tourism and there are just a lot of open doors and it's definitely not um People want to uh, open their wineries to you and accommodate. And a lot of times that's just built into their business models that you can just walk right up. So it's, uh, <clears throat> we found it to be quite, quite easy. What are the, what's the usual cost for a tasting? I, I've been t- to tastings in recent years in northern Michigan, actually, where you can do a, a wonderful tasting for $5. And I've done them in, in uh, Southern California where it's 75 now for a tasting of several wines. So so what what do people have to budget usually? I mean it's it's not much at all. It's usually more of a token of appreciation, probably less yeah. than 20 bucks and and usually chances are you might oftentimes people you can buy glasses and sit out on a porch or something. So it's also a little bit more of a leisurely experience. Yeah, nothing nothing's too aggressive at all. Well, as I said at the beginning of this interview, your new book, which is called an essential modern wine book and really reads like one. It's called How to Drink Australian. What do you hope people will get from this book? Do you hope people will use it as a guide to what wines they want to buy? Or do you hope to educate people about the viniculture process? Or or what's your hope for the book? We always say we're trying to just increase the global appreciation for Australian wine. Um, So, you know, we want people drinking more diverse styles of Australian wine. We want people walking into their wine shops or their favorite restaurants and saying, you know, oh, I heard there's some really interesting Riesling from Tasmania. How can I get my Hmm. hands on that? You know, we want people just um, curious and enthusiastic and excited about Australian wine the way that, you know, we really were when, when, and still are, but, um, you know, had that sort of revelation when we first moved there. And I think there's just a, a whole world of, of great Australian wine that people have, have yet to explore. Yeah. And I think we could almost build on that too, because, you know, Jane and I have spent a combined 40 years in the wine industry and, we, you think you see a lot of it when you when when you've done that, and and when we got to Australia, um, we realized that there's a lot of ways that we that the global industry, from a consumer perspective, a sommelier perspective, a production perspective, could be done a bit more hospitably, a bit more equitably, and a bit more sustainably. And we think Australia leads the globe in a lot of those ways, and we hope that kind of the things that motivated us and we learned while we were there are things that people can maybe glean from the book and and apply them to other aspects of the wine industry. Well, it is just a marvelous resource. Many, many congratulations. And thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thanks for having us. Our pleasure. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. 
all the chance.